everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of June 14th, 2020, otherwise known as COVID shutdown week 13. And in some areas of the world, post-COVID shutdown reopening week one. Uh, I'm Charles Hain, writer for No Film School. I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello, and Charles, thanks for continuing to track what week we're on, because I think nobody else, maybe in the whole world, is keeping track anymore. Well, I, I, I do it, it, it I do it as much for myself as I do it for all of you. Well, we so, appreciate We. Uh, I speak for everyone when I say we appreciate it. Yeah, because otherwise it's just this infinite space of identical days. Um, so this week we're going to be talking about some of the things at the end of these identical days with Gavin Newsom, governor of California, the state in which Hollywood, the capital of movies, is announcing that June 12th is going to be the restart date, although he announced some other dates originally as well, so it's a little confusing, so we're going to talk about that. We're going to be talking about uh, the 30 plus films you need to see that deal with race in America related to the ongoing protests. We have two bits of tech news this week. Uh, an update coming from Zcam for their E2 line of cameras, and then a really fascinating update coming from Narbox. All that this week on the No Film School podcast. Okay, so our first story this week, Gavin Newsom. So he has set a date of June 12th for the reopening of entertainment. Now, all, many of you are thinking, wait a minute, Am I just hearing this now? I thought Gavin Newsom announced two or three weeks ago that in two or three days, movies were going to restart. And in fact, he did prematurely, like two weeks ago, announced next Tuesday, movies are going to restart. Or it was Wednesday. It was early. It, it was a surprise early. And it, and it was universally met with responses from all of the unions and trade groups of, really? Because none of us are ready. And if we're not ready, this isn't happening. Um... So now we have a date that feels more real in that there's industry trade groups and uh, union groups have released their plans for what safe sets will look like. We've started to see a lot more of that information come out. And it's important to remember that this is county by county. And and what Gavin Newsom is not saying is, you guys can all go shoot films on Monday, June 12th. Or that's a Friday. On Friday, June 12th. He's not saying that. He is saying... On June 12th, every county can make their own decision. And what's realistically going to happen is Los Angeles County, the county in which Hollywood is, the incredibly large county, is likely to not say yes to June 12th. Now, just because there's a lot of production in Los Angeles County doesn't mean that's where all of the production is. There's other production in California. Um, you see some production in the Central Valley. You definitely see some a lot of production in the Bay Area. So I think we're going to see different counties restarting at different times. What we're seeing now is the state relaxing. And this is huge news because, you know, if you're following these stories on Facebook groups, if you're, you know, there's that great Facebook group reopening Hollywood, there's a lot of others. There's still a tremendous amount of, like, we all, everybody wants to be back to work so badly. We all want to be back to work so badly. I have two friends right now who are prepping jobs that are literally on hold that are both jobs have announced the second they're allowed to go, they're going. Like everybody wants to be back at it. That's, good to to fe- that's a good feeling for them to know that that's like on the horizon. Oh yeah. It's, it's like super exciting that the town feels so alive, but it's also, we want to do it safely. And there's, you know, film is going to be harder than reopening an auto factory. Film sets are very hard to make safe. Everybody's yeah. running around. Everybody is gathering in groups by the monitor. Everybody's gathering in groups by hair and makeup. Like people are touching each other. There's scenes where people kiss. It's, it's, it's way harder than a car factory. 
Yes, it's significantly harder to fathom how set is safe. We've talked about that before. And I guess my question for you and I and and really for everybody out there is how we feel about the difference between being allowed, like we talked about this in re- in in relationship to uh, oh, Tenet opening, the Christopher Nolan yeah. movie in July. There's a difference between the it's all clear you can go and feeling like it's a good idea, or maybe if it's a good idea for you. You know, the, there has been a there's this phased reopening happening around the, around the country. We've also seen just in June some serious spikes in numbers, which many people are saying could be from Mother's Day and Memorial Day, that I'm worried we're going to see some spikes from the protests, which were great. And I'm glad they happened, but I'm afraid- we're I'm going to argue really hardly against that narrative. From every guide I have read about minimizing uh, transmission, being outdoors, outdoor transmission of these kind of diseases is incredibly rare. Doesn't mean it doesn't That's happen, a good point. But it means outdoors. Also, I've been to these protests. The protest I went to, we were staying far distant from each other. People were not crowding up together. We were all wearing masks. People were handing out uh, sealed water bottles. There were tremendous efforts on the part of the protesters. You know, I've been to other protests in my life where people were holding hands. That was certainly not happening here. So for me, if there is a spike, I'm worried about people blaming it on the protests, which, you know, like, sure, there are protesters who are out there wearing masks outdoors, staying distanced. In the meantime, you look at pictures in Las Vegas this week, and there's a whole bunch of people gambling at tables yes, without masks on. That's that's so, the problem. That's I was gonna I was gonna go to that. Like you may be right. It may not be the protests. It may be some. It may be a combination of a couple protests where they weren't following, and it, and uh, you know, a guy in Las. I saw a clip of a guy at a slot machine who was smoking a cigarette through his mask. But anyway, yes, people couldn't help but go back to Vegas. The images from Vegas are are upsetting because they're, the casinos are packed. Um, that's a closed, contained space too, so it's not open air. You're right about the open air thing. Um, and yet... And I look, we drove over the weekend. I took my family. We were trying to find a place to go for a hike. The parking lots were packed and a lot of the people walking around were not wearing masks. And I thought, well, that doesn't seem so great. We could see a spike and we could blame a lot of things. We won't really know what caused the spike. But I think to articulate my point, I'm worried that we're going to see another big spike because there have been a lot of We've moved forward in our phases of reopenings, and I think with the moving forward, people have become relaxed as to their um, the care they take to protect transmission. And I think then whatever we blame for the spike, it's going to affect our ability to continue on this path of, of reopening things. So uh, what's my point? Just that we may say, oh, we're back to opening sets and then suddenly say, just like offices, and then suddenly say, "Ooh, there's you know, hospitals are packed, and you know, numbers are way numbers are way up in June than they were already in all of March." There are trends we're going to watch for, and we still don't have a vaccine. I would just caution against getting too excited about the opening because I think the uh, I think we need to see how it goes. Does that make sense? I think we need to see how it goes before we can really say, "Wow, we're back." You know? Oh, I mean, I think it's going to be two years before it feels anything like. We're back, back, where it's like totally normal and we don't even think about it. I mean, you know, we're going through a safety plan right now where I work of like, you know, we're going to be evaluating. We've always evaluated locations for feasibility. Like, oh, you want to shoot in that location? You're going to need to run a generator. They're going to have all power. We evaluate student productions. We have a safety officer. 
great. Um, and now we're going to be asking for square footage on your location. Like, okay. Yeah. Gonna rel- and you know, safe we- distance between people working on set. Like these, yeah, these will all become part of the workflow and we'll all get used to them. Just like you and I have said, we'll, we all got used to, you know, f- flight precautions and, and people like you and me remember when you could just walk onto a plane. <laughs> off yeah. the street basically but i like i i would just also say cuz i'm really curious about it since you brought it up you work in a education facility what can you let us know a little bit about what the plan is cuz i'm sure we have a lot of listeners who either have are in school or want to go back to school or thinking about school like what's what's that process like like what's the future look like for you as an educator so first off nothing is final uh so anything i say right now is provisional uh, you know, it's interesting working for, you know, CUNY, the city of University of New York, where I work, it's the largest employer in the city of New York. Um, it is, we have a tremendous, large workforce. So we have a risk assessment office that we're going to work with that like, so, you know, we're submitting plans to the risk assessment office. We're talking to people from the school of public health. So it's not something that we're developing on our own. It's something that's being developed with experts where we're proposing what we think based on our knowledge is safe. And then we're saying, all right, Based on everything we've read, because everybody's been doing as much reading and research as we can, this is what we think is safe. But you guys are the ultimate experts. Please work with us on finding a way to implement this. Because we desperately want production for our students to restart. We want production and post and use of our facilities back as soon as we can. Um, and it's, you know, I was also really lucky. We were invited to be part of an inner school conversation with uh, NYU and Columbia and a few other sort of peer schools. And um, I can talk about specifically what was discussed there, but like all of the major film schools are going through a process of really saying like, all right, well, it's going to be our obligation to train our students to be able to do this safely. You know, uh, the yeah. same way that we've always trained our students to like be safe with electricity and be safe with hours. That's something that's coming up a lot. And then, you know, specifically for us, we're having all of these conversations about like, you know, there's a, that psychological perception you talk about where you drive down the street, and you see a whole bunch of people without masks and you start to get this idea in your head that maybe masks aren't required anymore. But even if they aren't in the world, and they should be out in the world, but they're not, you're going to a film shoot and you're in a 300, 400 square foot studio apartment and there's five of you for six hours. You should be wearing masks absolutely for that period of time. Like indoor transmission, long-term interaction where you're near each other for longer periods of time. And so we're really looking at it like a psychological barrier where we're going to have to be enforcing much stricter protocols. We're going to have to be saying things like you're required to do this, you're required to do that, that might not look like what's going on if you walk down the street and if you stick your, you look in a coffee shop, you might see people standing in line in a coffee shop without masks. But we're going to be saying that might be out there, but in here, you're probably going to have to be wearing a mask. Uh, we're also having all sorts of debates about, you know, how many, how many people can we let in a room? Like if we have an edit room, can we let two different people oh, use yeah. it a day? Have or do we have to disinfect in between? Yeah. We're doing some research into UVC lighting. Uh, UVC lighting, you can place in a room and you leave it on and the UVC light theoretically will disinfect. We're seeing that on the MTA trains here in New York. There's going to be so much demand. You know, a few months ago, we were talking about things like being out of uh, Purell. Now you can walk into any CVS, even a CVS around the corner from me that was raided in, in, the, in the rioting, and they're stocked with Purell, because there is that thing about the market where it does respond to the need. And I feel like in like six months time, we're going to see a lot of new things introduced that are extremely valuable to people trying to get back to work on set or anywhere like you're talking about. And I think that there's going to be other things too, like um, 
more practices on set that a set is just a place that festers a kind of contact and germs and things like that, that, uh, would be easy for transmission, but I can just see so many ways we'll see workflows change, um, what people do with their gear. Plus we may, we may find out more about how this is transmitted on surfaces. There's been some question as to whether or not that's really a concern. Um, certainly as long as people feel like it is, that'll be an issue, but maybe in six months, we'll have a narrower idea of what we really need to protect against. And then the goal is always been because I don't believe that we'll ever shut down a second time. I don't think there's any will to do that. I think shutting down the first time took all the political will everybody had. And especially if an election is coming up, a governor with an election coming up is not going to shut down. It's an unfortunate aspect of the situation. I think if cases get high enough, we should shut back down. But my personal gut is saying that even if cases climb higher than they were in March, we're not going to shut down a second time. But the goal of the first shutdown was at least partially for that market effect of people to go out and make more masks and make more respirators and get us prepared so that we can handle another spike. There was actually that huge, there was a hit Chinese reality TV show that was following an entrepreneur traveling around the world trying to get fabric to make more masks with because you need very fine fabric for making masks. And, uh, you know, already in March, they shot it as he traveled around. I think it was Turkey trying to find a mill to make in this fabric. And it was a hit show by April. Um, and so, you know, people are obviously working to try and get the things out there. Yeah. And that that's a good point about the shutdown. I think that you can make the case that we we wasted some of the time as a country in our shutdown. But you could also make the case that like my wife works at the hospital, the UCLA hospital near to where we live, and they haven't had a ton of cases and they are super prepared. Like they were not prepared six months, uh, six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, but now they are because there's been time to get ready. So it's sort of like we bought a little time for the next wave where we could see cases spike, but we may not see that disaster scenario we were worrying about at the initial wave, which was cases spike, and we can't take care of the need, the sudden need of people. We're not prepared for this. Like our hospitals are crumbling under the weight of the of the demand. So yeah, I think like we can feel confident that even as cases are going to go up, our infrastructure is a little more prepared. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. And like our sets, you know, they all shut down. They're all going to slowly, there's a lot of productions. There's a lot of big, like high level stuff that's going to be happening going into production in the next months. And we, we will watch how they handle it because there's a lot riding on it and they have a lot more money and resources to pour into doing it properly. Yeah. We will keep everybody abreast as productions start ramping up. And as we hear first-hand reports from people working on those productions. I already know one guy in New York who did a day of shooting for an international client. It was a very small crew and everything fast and safe and, but, you know, little tiny, like, two or three-person things are starting to go out, like, we see for Saturday Night Live and such. So, yeah, we will keep you guys posted. Our next subject today, Liz Nord, former editor-in-chief before George Edelman had written an article a couple of years ago on sort of the most essential films uh, that deal with race from Hollywood, and she just updated it. I think it went live on the 8th. Uh, you know, 30 films dealing with race. And, uh, you know, it, we, we just wanted to highlight it and talk about it a little bit. Um, the first thing I want to say, I mean, obviously we're talking about it because of what's happening in America and worldwide at the moment, but I, I, I do want to flag that, like, there's a... These are not movies that are going to feel like homework. These are not movies that feel like something that... They're not after school specials. Like, 
one of my favorite movies of all time, probably my favorite movie that they saw that year, that I saw that year is a movie called uh, Sorry to Bother You by Boots Riley. And, you know, it made this list because it is this real look at the economic forces that impact black Americans. And it's also hilariously funny. It also really dives into uh, code switching. Code switching is, you know, the ability that many underprivileged groups, specifically black Americans, develop of learning different codes, speaking different circumstances, developing a white voice in order to deal with white spaces, developing a black voice to deal with black spaces, that, that kind of code switching that is something that's like native to many black Americans, alien to many Americans who mostly spend time in places where they feel comfortable and accepted and where they don't have to modify themselves to fit in whatsoever. So like, sorry to bother you is like, it's a movie every filmmaker should watch. First off, because it so beautifully talks about race, but it's also like, you're really thinking about characters, thinking about the way in which that character has to make decisions presenting themselves. It's sort of an essential thing to think about for screenwriting. And sorry to bother you, like really takes that and runs with it. It is uh, very entertaining. The Pete Stanfield's great. Tessa Thompson is great. Uh, it is a very entertaining movie. It's also got a really great Army Hammer performance. Um, so, you know, sorry to bother you. That's the one I want to pull out of that list. This is a list of highly entertaining movies that covers a lot of genre. So I also wanted to put a pin in that, Charles, because you say it's not like a, you know, it's not like a history lesson or it's, there's all kinds of stuff. And the one I'm going to highlight, I mean, there's so many good things in here, but the one I want to highlight is one of my favorite movies and my pick for when we did a list for no film school of the most important movies or best movies of the decade from 2010 to 2019, this was the movie I picked. Um, because I just think it's everything we should want. It's Get Out by Jordan Peele. And I think that, like, when I saw Get Out, I was amazed that he managed, that this movie managed to get made. I still, it's, I still am. I think it's kind of a unicorn because it's such a pure point of view. It's a movie that could only come from him. And if you know the comedy he did and you know his life perspective, he's biracial, where he grew up. What he's exposed to, what his sense of humor is, it's his experience. And so much of what you learn in the No Film School community or in the the bigger community we're a part of that includes like Sundance Collab and so many other places is that everybody is looking for perspective and point of view. That's what Hollywood is looking for, even though it doesn't always seem that way in the finished product. They're looking for younger filmmakers and storytellers who have point of view who can say, this is a story that only I can tell and that I have to tell this way because that's attractive and exciting. And, and it also ties into the idea we were talking about last week on the podcast of diversity of perspective. And Sundance is looking for that and audiences are looking for that. And I just feel like Get Out is, is special because it executes, like it's funny, it's dark, it's scary, it's weird, it's everything. But just aside from its its formal qualities as a film, it's an example of a filmmaker. Uh, he achieved a certain level of success that allowed him to do this, but it's still so hard to like push through all those you know gatekeepers and boundaries to finally get a movie made. To get one made that's such a uniquely weird genre mash and point of view, I think is a you know it's one of those special things. Um, Hollywood 
is often a place of like its best work is a, is an accident, I think, and it's just one of those perfect accidents. Um, and there's so many things to love about it. If you haven't seen Keanu, which was the movie he made before that, I love that movie too. It's hilarious. <laughs> you can't like that. Like, so I'm just a big fan of Key and Peele and, and him in general. But uh, yeah, I, I just can't. I, I think Get Out is great. But also, Fruitvale Station is also incredible and so impactful and would be a great watch right now. I also want to say specifically about Get Out that Get Out reconnected me with something. Like when I first moved to LA and Hollywood, I was first meeting with people and talking about the movies I wanted to make. Like, it was always political. And it was always, there was a message, there was a thing I was interested in. And the thing I kept hearing over and over is like, don't be preachy and don't be like after school specially. And like, I even internalized some of that in the warning. I just like, you guys are listening to me and realize right now that that warning I gave you about like, oh, don't be afraid of these movies. I'm embarrassed I gave that one. We should keep it in the podcast because that's how much I've internalized this idea that like movies that are about something scare people movies that are about something or something you might not want to watch or whatever. And like, you know, I, like, I remember I've told this story on the podcast before I, I was in a meeting with a prospective manager who liked some of my work and I pitched him everything. And the last thing I pitched was about Major Taylor. He's like, you know, if you don't know who Major Taylor is, he was a, one of the first worldwide famous athletes of all time, uh, at the turn of the century, uh, black bicycle rider and, you know, like racism ruined his life. Uh, and the manager was like, and he said this in all honesty, he was like, Charles, don't you know that movies are about white people in America? I've told this story multiple times. I'll never get tired of telling that story. But like, I internalized some of that stuff to the extent where even when I was talking about this post, and like, all, my, I, all of the movies I've seen from that post are great movies. I, I want to go back and watch the rest of the movies I haven't seen. But like, get out, reawoken me, the thing where you're like, no, this movie's about something. It is in a genre box. And the genre works and it's affectionate to the genre and it doesn't put down to the genre, but it is also deeply angry about something and about something it sees it's happening in the world. And uh, it really like, it got me in touch with a thing about movies that I was excited about movies when I first got in there. Totally. Yeah, I mean, it is a miracle that. Well said. Uh, I, I think that yeah. to, to, to piggyback on that point. Yeah. I also said it because you want to get people it's kind of like, you know, for parents like us, sometimes people will say like they don't want to eat their vegetables. So you'll like, you know, put broccoli on a pizza or something like you'll get, you'll try to sneak it in. And I think what Get Out does so well, that's so hard to do. And a lot of people would ask me when I was, I would be raving about Get Out and some people would see it and be like, eh, it doesn't seem super realistic or I don't get it, which is fine. You know, not everything's for everyone. No problem. Like whatever. There's plenty of stuff I hate out there. But I would always say like, well, there's a lot of metaphor in Get Out and it's not supposed to be like super realistic. But aside from that, it packaged a powerful message in a hyper real story. And that's what storytelling to me at its best can become. It's like you can, you know, it's not literal, it's metaphor. And you can take, you can enjoy the story just because you enjoy the ride. And then maybe afterwards reflect a little bit and think, huh, was that supposed to mean? And does that apply to me? And like, we even saw the memes, the memes from it are so powerful still, like the echoes of, you know, a lot of, uh, Democrats in Congress were wearing these scarves the other day when they knelt. And I saw a Photoshop of the, the, the parents in Get Out, 
the white parents who who claim to be not racist, right, and liberal wearing the scarves. And it was like this, <laughs> it's this moment of like, there's a performative tolerance, you know, and this really gets into the the wedge of who Jordan Peele is, but he did so many sketches on Key and Peele that were about white people trying to prove that they're not racist. That's like an overcompensation or like not treating an African-American like a human being that they that's complex, but treating them like, you know, just like a stereotype in a way that's not overtly racist, but is that like subtle kind of complicated, you know? And I just think as far as what what where we are today with race in America, it's such a subtle, complicated take on it that also happens to be extremely entertaining. And movies that can entertain and teach you something. I mean, that's what no film schools, that's like, that's like our whole thing. It's like we wanna, we wanna have a take, but we wanna teach you something. And I, when a movie does that, I'm just I'm in love with it. I don't know if any movie is just a movie. I think even movies that just make you happy for two hours, they are replicating something or carrying a message that the filmmaker might not even have intended. You were talking about broccoli on pizza, and I realized that the reason why we talk about political things as being like after-school specials is that like most after-school specials were made on like a two-week schedule, and they were rushed, and nobody cared, and they were just doing it to be fast. And it was basically like taking a message and cooking it for you. So it was basically like, I don't know if you've ever had like steamed broccoli, but it's disgusting. Of course. I don't know why we <laughs> children. But like the discovery of adulthood is that like, if you get out like a cast iron skillet and you get like some butter in there and fry up that broccoli with like a little garlic minced up and maybe some like green onion, that it's delicious. So like the the true thing, what No Film School is all about, what filmmaking is about, is figuring out like what is the vehicle that gets the thing you need, whatever the things you need out of broccoli are. I'm sure, I, I don't know enough about nutrition to know what's in there. It's, good, <laughs> it's um, green, right? It's green. Yeah, green. It's, it's green and there's uh, goitrogens in there. I don't know if that's good or bad. It's about finding the way to like fry it up in some butter with a little bit of garlic. And like that's the, that's the beauty of good filmmaking is when you're like, oh, you know, I, I, I see this true thing here. And, and the process of seeing the true thing is also presented to me in this fashion with like skill and attention and care. And honestly, I'm a little mad at after school specials for giving political filmmaking a bad name. Yeah, well, it's a good, yeah. Some of them are fun in a bad way, but I want to just throw into that like on No Film School, we have tons of articles we did about Parasite from last year, which won Best Picture, which was an exciting Best Picture win for many reasons. We covered it on this podcast. But people love reading those stories. We even have an interview with the editor of Parasite and how we worked with Bong and how they put that thing together in the editing room. That's a really good example of a movie that connected and had a point. That's that's your broccoli co- cooked in a casket <laughs> casket cooked in, <laughs> cooked in a pan with uh with butter because it's like it's there's a lot of good stuff there and it's but it's not preachy it's not dry it's not raw it's it's tasty we've got two pieces of tech news this week but they both have at least some political subtext first piece of tech news this week is a little company called Zcam They're out of China, and they've come out with a camera for a couple of years now called the E2. And, you know, the E2 is crazy. It is a, you can get a full-frame 8K camera for $6,000. In comparison, if you want a full-frame red 8K camera, it's like $50,000. And red is the notoriously affordable one. 
Aerie doesn't even make anything 8K. Aerie's highest resolution thing is only 4K. Now, resolution isn't everything. Color reproduction counts way more than resolution. Uh, you know, I'm always, I was just on a call the other day with someone and they were like, what do I shoot? Do I care about 8K? And I was like, I still don't care about 8K. I really just care about like nice skin tones, good latitude, how easy a camera is to work with. Which as a recap is is exactly why everyone loves Aerie, right? Yes. Yeah, skin tones. why everyone loves Aerie. Oh, the skin tones look so good. It just looks nice straight out of the camera. Um, however, I can't afford to buy an Alexa, and many people can't, and I can't always afford to rent it. I've definitely been on jobs where I went with other camera packages because, you know, I love the Vericam as well, and if I can rent the Vericam for as much and put more money in lighting, then I might need those lights for a night exterior, and I couldn't afford, even if the raw budget covered it sometimes, you know, um, beautiful movie, uh, Crazy Station shot Vericam because I'm sure budget was part of the overall conversation, um, which is ironic for a movie rich in the title about super rich people. <laughs> so looking at affordable stuff is always really exciting to us. And the fact that they have an 8K camera that's full frame sensor for 6,000 is amazing. And um, so they they have a 4K camera that's usually 2,000. Now, this is a 4K camera that looks like a cinema camera. You can mount a PL mount on it. It is uh, a fascinating thing that they're doing. And it shoots to raw you can shoot to ProRes RAW to an Atomos recorder, or you can shoot to something called Z-RAW. I would probably recommend getting an Atomos recorder and going to ProRes RAW. There's a lot broader support and a lot more platforms for ProRes RAW than you're seeing for Z-RAW. Especially lately, right? The expanded yeah. support. Yeah. Yeah. All spring, we've been seeing that really roll out. But we wanted to talk about it today because they just came out with something called the M4. And it's a micro four-thirds sensor. So it's a four-thirds of an inch sensor. It's like... It's slightly smaller than Super 35 sized. It's not full frame, but that's okay. You don't need full frame. Micro Four Thirds, it, I shoot a lot of stuff in that format. And it's nice. You have a little more depth of field. You can pull focus a little more easily. What's crazy, 4K, raw capable Micro Four Thirds camera for $1,500. And they did it by getting rid of some features, specifically a feature that allowed multiple cameras to sync together that I actually think is a pretty smart sacrifice. Having multiple cameras that sync together is great if you're shooting a sporting event. You want to be able to synchronize the shutters on all the cameras to make live switching easier. Definitely an important feature for many jobs. But also a feature that, like, I'll go 10 years at a time and forget the cameras even do it because I'm not just out there shooting single camera. Or if I'm shooting multi-camera, I'm not shooting multi-camera in a live switch scenario where I need them sunk up. Or I'm not shooting 3D. And 3D is actually going to be something you're not going to want to do on the M4 if you're if you're buying these for 3D because they're small cameras. You want to go want to go up to the two thousand dollar model. But it's this smart move they made where they're like, oh well, what if we could take out this feature people don't need and they could make it for five hundred dollars less? And you know the the online footage from this camera is really quite pleasant. Of course, online footage you always see is been color graded, and so you never really know what the raw looks like. I'm really excited to start playing with it and. The, the way it's relevant to the world we're in today is it has an Ethernet port built into the camera, and it allows for not um, computer-free streaming, meaning if that Ethernet port has Internet, if it's plugged into your home router or, you know, if you have some sort of mobile broadband solution that puts out Ethernet, you know, like the Teradek Link, which can transform your... Uh, your uh, like uh, mobile internet solution into an Ethernet cable. You plug it into the camera, and it, and it can live stream to Facebook or Twitch or any of the other big RTMP, RTPS, or SRT platform with no computer required. So if you want to be out there either teaching a class or recording a protest 
and you want to be doing it with a nicer quality image, a higher resolution, and most especially a wider latitude, and maybe a lens that has a better zoom range. I mean, we all have really been frustrated with the zoom ranges on our cameras when trying to shoot these events. You know, pairing this with a nice long range uh, zoom and then plugging it in over Ethernet to some sort of internet connection makes it a really sort of dynamic option for streaming. Would this be a good solution for if you want to shoot stuff from home, get it straight up onto the internet or from wherever you go, maybe to a park, maybe you're doing a fitness class or maybe you're doing a lecture or maybe you're just doing a course on something. I don't know what, but you want to stream immediately and you want a really good looking image. Like, does this provide that in a way that, you know, other cameras don't? This is definitely going to look way better than your phone. You're going to have focus hour zoom control. You're going to have a much wider latitude. Um, and, you know, the images come out of it are going to be very pleasing. The key to remember is that you're going to need some way of getting it to the Internet. It, it does. It goes to Ethernet. There's a variety of solutions. Teradek has a couple solutions that, um, you know, take cellular and turn cellular into Internet um, so that you can plug Ethernet in one side and the other side is connected to your your, you know, your Verizon wireless, your AT&T wireless LTE network. So you can go to the park and just stream. The camera doesn't have that built in. It doesn't have like a cellular chip built into it. But if you have a way of getting it internet, you don't need a computer. It'll just go. And that's super exciting and, and adds some flexibility. So 1500 is obviously low for, for this quality cinema camera. And you could honestly like get two of them, really. It wouldn't be like crazy. But my question, because like if you're worried about the multicam stuff, but my my question is, what do you think? And we don't know because you haven't seen raw. What do you think the trade off is maybe in terms of your post work to get it to look as good as people will expect? Because, you know, the eye of the audience when they're comparing your final image to, you know, the things that are shot on the Alexa, et cetera, like. That's the that's where the rubber meets the road for me. Like if I'm thinking of making a movie and I'm thinking of the camera solutions that save me some money and I think, oh, this is great. I could have it and I could do X, Y, Z and it's cheaper. But how much work am I creating for myself or someone down the line in terms of getting that image quality up to snuff? Well, I'm going to say test, test, test. And the reason why is because every movie is different. So if you've written a movie and it's supposed to, it's set in the high desert, you're going to be day exterior every day, the sun beating down on you, 20 to 1 contrast ratio or 200 to 1 contrast ratio. You might take this camera out and do it side by side with the Alexa and be like, oh my God, the Alexa is so much better. This is camera's all, all, all so much more work. But you might have a night exterior movie that's set entirely down by the docks and this camera or another camera with an even higher ISO might perform better. So I think it's really about the movie and the project. And there's a reason why even people who are incredibly familiar with their modern cameras still do tests for every production they're doing. And so they're still like, oh, you know, I know you like that in the red, but I'm going to still test it for this project and its situation. Almost every cinematographer that I've spoken with um, in an interview for print or for this podcast for No Film School has told me that they do a lot of testing with both cameras but also with lens combinations because the, that's where they get the change in their look is what camera they pair with which lens. So that's a good answer. And, and it wraps up well because this camera has an MFT mount, an EF mount, or a PL mount. So you have all of the PL mount lenses available to you. All right. Our, our other piece of tech news, our double tech news week, is Narbox. If you guys don't know Narbox, they're a company that makes 
you know, they started in the action sports space, which is why Narbox and GANR, NAR, Gnarly. Um, and they originally started making this device and it was designed as a computer free download box. So you're out there in the wild and it's this little box. It's like the size of a cell phone. It's got an SD card slot in it. You can stick in your SD card and it'll automatically download your files to an internal hard drive built in it. And so it's this really useful thing if you're out in the field a lot and you're, you know, you're shooting and you don't want to have to bring your laptop with you because you're going to be snowboarding or, you know, in general, maybe you want to do your download while you're driving down the side of the mountain. You know, I've worked on a lot of jobs where because I didn't want to do the download on the subway and pull out my MacBook Pro to do the download. I didn't do the download until I was back in my office. And this is designed to give you a really easy, fast way to do downloads in the field. They have added this amazing new feature. I've been playing with it today. And it is direct frame IO integration, which means I'm out there in the field. I don't have my laptop with me. I'm shooting. Maybe I see something related to a police riot. Maybe I see something related to a political activity. Maybe I just get an amazing shot of a mallard I've been chasing my whole life. I pull the SD card out of my camera. I stick it in the Narbox. I tell it to download. And it not only downloads to my phone, to, to the Narbox itself. So I have the SD card copy and now the Narbox copy. It can also now be set up to automatically using either the Wi-Fi. If you're on Wi-Fi, you can like give your Wi-Fi password to your Narbox. If you are somewhere with Wi-Fi or even using your cell phone data, it will upload directly to Dropbox or Frame.io. Frame.io obviously being a platform that's very popular. A lot of filmmakers has a lot of great integrations. You can add a Frame.io drive to your Resolve. And so like someone could be editing back at your home office and you're out there shooting in the field. You just pop it in the Narbox. You never use your laptop. And bam, it's going to appear in their edit workflow as a hard drive. It's going to just pop up automatically. And that's sort of a very cool integration. I mean, I guess this is Narbok news and Frame.io news. Frame.io has really been working on field download solutions, but I thought this was super cool. Is it just also a reliable way of backing up just so you have safely copies of things? Like say you have a DIT and you are going to your, you know, eventually to a machine as well, but you're on set and you're like, you could also put it on the Narbox. So you have... I mean, this isn't really designed for the size of productions. If you're out there with a DIT and they have a DIT card, they have a bigger setup. This is really designed for smaller productions. You're out there with a small number of people. And it's the kind of production where if you didn't do Narbox, you wouldn't make a, a, a copy till you got home at all. And we've all done those jobs. And I've been doing this for 20 years. And I still end up on things where I'm like, oh, there's no time. And I, there's nowhere to set a laptop. And we're just running and gunning or whatever. And it's really designed for that. And so it's not, people, it's not meant as a – it doesn't have a place in that workflow. It's not going to replace any step of like the Avengers workflow, but maybe the BTS photographer on Avengers, you know, um, but it will for a lot of indie filmmakers, depending upon the kind of productions we do. And it has a USB port in it. So you can attach a card reader for like reading red mags or CFast cards. And it has, uh, and you can even attach another hard drive to it. So you could stick your SD card in and it'll make two copies, one to the Narbox and one to your external media. And really that, then you have three copies and three copies are when people start to relax. You've got your SD card, <laughs> you've got your Narbox, and yeah, three copies. Two copies is fair minimum, but three three copies really makes the insurance company feel safe. So if you're out there in the field and you're taking a camera that has some sort of nicer format and you want to be sure you're making good copies of this, if, maybe if you're worried about a um, representative of the state confiscating your SD card, this is a good way that you could be habitually backing up as you go and also be prepared where if both your SD card and your Narbox got confiscated in some way because it was going automatically to Dropbox or Frame.io, 
you know, you could be out in the field and your people back in your base office or even in our apartment could be getting those files immediately, seeing what you're capturing, getting it out to editing it and get turning it around really quickly. So I think it's an, a really interesting integration. All right. So that is this week, COVID week 13 on the No Film School uh, podcast. I'm, I'm going to continue doing what we did last week. Usually we, uh, usually we, we uh, plug our pluggables of our own, but this week we're going to plug other pluggables. And I'm going to plug Wesley Lowry, the uh, former Washington Post journalist, really uh, entertaining stuff on the ground in Minneapolis, really engaging, smart, funny. I just listened to him on the long form podcast and uh, follow him on Twitter. And uh, really, you know, Michael Harriet, wonderful. Wesley Lowry, great. Check them both out. Those are my plugs this week. Nice. Those are, I don't have anything deep cuttish as my plug. Um, I have something that's kind of like a mainstream, quasi mainstream thing once again, but I think that this is really valuable right now. There's been a lot of talk in all of this, a phrase you've probably heard a lot has been defund the police. Last week tonight, John Oliver's HBO show did a great piece on what that really means and how it doesn't sound as extreme or it is not as extreme as perhaps it sounds. Uh, John Oliver's great. Last week tonight is great. It's funny, um, but it was a really great segment. It's been making its way around the internet the last few days. I believe they days. put it on YouTube for folks who don't have HBO. Uh, HBO has been doing a lot of that. They put the whole first season of Wyatt's Next Problem Areas, which is about policing in America, on YouTube. So HBO needs people to pay for HBO to get this stuff, but they're so excited about sharing this stuff right now. They're putting it on YouTube for free, so that deserves some... Sure. Yeah, thanks HBO for for yeah. for doing the good the good thing there. But also thank you Charles for helping articulate for people where they can find the thing that I'm talking about because I didn't know necessarily to put it so clear plainly and make it available to them. But that's the whole point. Uh, you should go check it out. It's fun because John Oliver is great. But it's it's like moving and and it's and it's powerful and it's I think a really good way of understanding what that could really mean and not just getting caught up in the buzz phrase and the, you know, back and forth that isn't necessarily productive about all of these things. It's a great segment. Everyone should watch it. And also remember, and I'm stealing this from someone else's Twitter, we've been living in a world the last 30 years where we've been defunding public education, social security, welfare, like every, like mental health services, every other thing we're comfortable with the idea of defunding. I don't think we should be public education money should come back, but like it's, you know, it's not unheard of. We just decide not to fund things and we can make the decision. I don't think anybody's expecting to go to a zero budget for any police force, but I think <laughs> right, right. the frame, the, the term, the idea isn't to just like eliminate them entirely and just live in the wild west, which by the way, they, they did have a police force in the wild west, they did. but anyway, anyway, and there's a lot of yeah. good books about it, but I, yeah, I just, I think we've, you know, we've leaned into some of the issues lately. That's, that's the world we live in right now. And I think that that, you know, that's how. That's part of what the narrative is to communicate about and understand for storytellers and, you know, all of us in general. That's where we are. So, yeah. Thanks for listening. 